shadowed by death. Meanwhile, Dr. Giroux, following Arsène Lupin's instructions, had climbed the ledge of the fifth window and groped his way to the first floor. On reaching Jeanne's room, he tapped lightly three times at the door and, immediately on entering, pushed the bolt. Lie down at once, he whispered to the girl, who had not taken off her thing. You must appear to have gone to bed. <sighs> it's cold in here. Is the window open in your dressing room? Yes. Yes, would you like me to... No, leave it as it is. They are coming. They're coming, spluttered Jeanne in a fright. Yes, beyond a doubt. But who? Do you suspect anyone? I don't know who. I expect that there is someone hidden in the house or in the park. Oh, I feel so frightened. Don't be frightened. The sportsman who's looking after you seems jolly clever and makes a point of playing a safe game. I expect he's on the lookout in the court. The doctor put out the nightlight, went to the window, and raised the blind. A narrow cornice running along the first story prevented him from seeing more than a distant part of the courtyard, and he came back and sat down by the bed. Some very painful minutes passed, minutes that appeared to them interminably long. The clock in the village struck, but, taken up as they were with all the little noises of the night, they hardly noticed the sound. They listened, listened with all their nerves on edge. Did you hear? whispered the doctor. Yes, yes, said Jeanne, sitting up in bed. Lie down, lie down, he said presently. There's someone coming. There was a little tapping sound outside, against the cornice. Next came a series of indistinct noises, the nature of which they could not make out for certain. But they had a feeling that the window in the dressing room was being opened wider, for they were buffeted by gusts of cold air. Suddenly, it became quite clear. There was someone next door. The doctor, whose hand was trembling a little, seized his revolver. Nevertheless, he did not move, remembering the formal orders which he had received and fearing to act against them. The room was in absolute darkness, and they were unable to see where the adversary was, but they felt his presence. They followed his invisible movements, the sound of his footsteps deadened by the carpet, and they did not doubt but that he had already crossed the threshold of the room. And the adversary stopped. Of that they were certain. He was standing six steps away from the bed, motionless, undecided perhaps, seeking to pierce the darkness with his keen eyes. Jeanne's hand, icy cold and clammy, trembled in the doctor's grasp. With his other hand, the doctor clutched his revolver with his finger on the trigger. In spite of his pledged word, he did not hesitate. If the adversary touched the end of the bed, the shot would be fired at a venture. The adversary took another step and then stopped again. 
And there was something awful about that silence, that impassive silence, that darkness in which those human beings were peering at one another wildly. Who was it looming in the murky darkness? Who was the man? What horrible enmity was it that turned his hand against the girl, and what abominable aim was he pursuing? Terrified though they were, Jeanne and the doctor thought only of that one thing, to see, to learn the truth, to gaze upon the adversary's face. He took one more step and did not move again. It seemed to them that his figure stood out darker against the dark space and that his arm rose slowly, slowly. A minute passed, and then another minute. And suddenly, beyond the man, on the right, a sharp click. A bright light flashed, was flung upon the man, lit him full in the face, remorselessly. Jeanne gave a cry of fright. She had seen, standing over her, with a dagger in his hand, she had seen her father. Almost at the same time, though the light was already turned off, there came a rapport. The doctor had fired. Dash it all! Don't shoot! roared Lupin. He threw his arms round the doctor, who choked out, Don't you see? Don't you see? Listen! He's escaping! Let him escape. It's the best thing that could happen. He pressed the spring of his electric lantern again, ran to the dressing room, made certain that the man had disappeared, and, returning quietly to the table, lit the lamp. Jeanne lay on her bed, pallid, in a dead faint. The doctor, huddled in his chair, emitted inarticulate sounds. Come, said Lupin, laughing, pull yourself together. There is nothing to excite ourselves about. It's all over. Her father, her father, moaned the old doctor. If you please, doctor, Mademoiselle Darcieux is ill. Look after her. Without more words, Lupin went back to the dressing room and stepped out on the window ledge. A ladder stood against the ledge. He ran down it. Skirting the wall of the house, twenty steps further, he tripped over the rungs of a rope ladder, which he climbed, and found himself in Monsieur Darcieux's bedroom. The room was empty. Just so, he said. My gentleman did not like the position and has cleared out. Here's wishing him a good journey. And, of course, the door is bolted? Exactly. That is how our sick man, tricking his worthy medical attendant, used to get up at night in full security, fasten his rope ladder to the balcony, and prepare his little game. He's no fool, is that Darcieux. He drew the bolts and returned to Jeanne's room. The doctor, who was just coming out of the doorway, drew him to the little dining room. She's asleep. Don't let us disturb her. She has had a bad shock and will take some time to recover. Lupin poured himself out a glass of water and drank it down. Then he took a chair and, calmly, Ah, she'll be all right by tomorrow. What do you say? I say, she'll be all right by tomorrow. Why? In the first place, because it did not strike me that Mademoiselle Darcieux felt any very great affection for her father. Never mind that. Think of it, a father who tries to kill his daughter. A father who, for months on end, repeats his monstrous attempt four, five, six times over again. 
Well, isn't that enough to blight a less sensitive soul than John's for good and all? What a hateful memory. She will forget. One does not forget such a thing as that. She will forget, doctor, and for a very simple reason. Explain yourself. She is not Monsieur Darcieux's daughter. Eh? I repeat, she is not that villain's daughter. What do you mean? Monsieur Darcieux... Monsieur Darcieux is only her stepfather. She had just been born when her father, her real father, died. Jeanne's mother then married a cousin of her husband's, a man bearing the same name, and she died within a year of her second wedding. She left Jeanne in Monsieur Darcieux's charge. He first took her abroad and then bought this country house, and as nobody knew him in the neighborhood, he represented the child as being his daughter. She herself did not know the truth about her birth. The doctor sat confounded. He asked, Are you sure of your facts? I spent my day in the town halls of the Paris municipalities. I searched the registers. I interviewed two solicitors. I have seen all the documents. There is no doubt possible. But that does not explain the crime, or rather, series of crimes. Yes, it does, declared Lupin, and from the start, from the first hour when I meddled in this business, some words which Mademoiselle Darcieux used made me suspect the direction which my investigations must take. I was not quite five years old when my mother died, she said. That was sixteen years ago. Mademoiselle Darcieux, therefore, was nearly twenty-one, that is to say, she was on the verge of attaining her majority. I at once saw that this was an important detail. The day on which you reach your majority is the day on which your accounts are rendered. What was the financial position of Mademoiselle Darcieux, who was her mother's natural heiress? Of course, I did not think of the father for a second. To begin with, one can't imagine a thing like that. And then, the farce which Monsieur Darcieux was playing, helpless, bedridden, ill... Really ill, interrupted the doctor. All this diverted suspicion from him the more so as I believed that he himself was exposed to criminal attacks. But was there not in the family some person who would be interested in their removal? My journey to Paris revealed the truth to me. Mademoiselle Darcieux inherits a large fortune from her mother, of which her stepfather draws the income. The solicitor was to have called a meeting of the family in Paris next month. The truth would have been out. It meant ruin to Monsieur Darcieux. Then he had put no money by? Yes, but he had lost a great deal as the result of unfortunate speculations. But, after all, Jeanne would not have taken the management of her fortune out of his hands. There is one detail that you do not know, doctor, and that I learned from reading the torn letter. Mademoiselle Darcieux is in love with the brother of Marceline, her Versailles friend. Monsieur Darcieux was opposed to the marriage and, you now see the reason, she was waiting until she came of age to be married. You're right, said the doctor. You're right. It meant his ruin. His absolute ruin. One chance of saving himself remained, the death of his stepdaughter, of whom he is the next heir. Certainly, but on condition that no one suspected him. Of course, and that is why he contrived the series of accidents, so that the death might appear to be due to misadventure. 
and that is why, on my side, wishing to bring things to a head, asked you to tell him of Mademoiselle Darcieux's impending departure. From that moment, it was no longer enough for the would-be sick man to wander about the grounds and the passages in the dark and execute some leisurely, thought-out plan. No, he had to act, to act at once, without preparation, violently, dagger in hand. I had no doubt that he would decide to do it. And he did. Then he had no suspicions. Of me, yes. He felt that I would return tonight, and he kept a watch at the place where I had already climbed the wall. Well, said Lupin, laughing, I received a bullet full in the chest. Or rather, my pocketbook received a bullet. Here, you can see the hole. So I tumbled from the tree like a dead man. Thinking that he was rid of his only adversary, he went back to the house. I saw him prowl about for two hours. Then, making up his mind, he went to the coach house, took a ladder, and set it against the window. I had only to follow him. The doctor reflected and said, You could have collared him earlier. Why did you let him come up? It was a sore trial for Jeanne, and unnecessary. On the contrary, it was indispensable. Mademoiselle Darcieux would never have accepted the truth. It was essential that she should see the murderer's very face. You must tell her all the circumstances when she wakes. She will soon be well again. But, Monsieur Darcieux? You can explain his disappearance as you think best. A sudden journey? A fit of madness? There will be a few inquiries, and you may be sure that he will never be heard of again. The doctor nodded his head. Yes, that is so, that is so. You are quite right. You have managed all this business with extraordinary skill, and Jeanne owes you her life. She will thank you in person. But now, can I be of use to you in any way? You told me that you were connected with the detective service. Will you allow me to write and praise your conduct, your courage? Lupin began to laugh. <laughs> Certainly. A letter of that kind would do me a world of good. <laughs> you might write to my immediate superior, Chief Inspector Ganimar. He will be glad to hear that his favorite officer, Paul Dubreuil of the Rue de Suresne, has once again distinguished himself by a brilliant action. As it happens, I have an appointment to meet him about a case of which you may have heard, the case of the Red Scarf. How pleased my dear Monsieur Ganimard will be. <laughs>